0: Mr. President, without objection. Mr. President, I call up my amendment per the order. The clerk will report the amendment. The senator from Vermont.
1: What is going on? Why are you making me listen to this?
2: Okay, this is from a YouTube video from 2009, and it's called "Senate Chaos." Senator Bernie Sanders from Vermont. He's just proposed an amendment uh, to a health care bill, and as usually happens, he asked the amendment be considered as read. Since Senators usually get these bills and amendments in advance, there's no need to
3: read them aloud.
0: Objection. Object.
2: Alright, right there. Objection. Senator Tom Coburn from Oklahoma table
0: of objects. Contents. The table of contents of this act is
2: as follows. So the clerk has to read the whole American thing. And it's Section 767 1, pages. Alright, listen to this.
4: And had the courage to change from green to red or red to green.
1: How is that possible, Mr. Speaker? Whoa! What is going on?
2: <laughs> what is going on, Hannah? It's the House the of Representatives, such a <laughs> magical place.
4: Let me raise another parliamentary, inquiry. Mr. Speaker, Mr. Speaker, raise the the parliamentary inquiry. Mr. Speaker, let me raise a parliamentary inquiry. Mr. Speaker, Mr. Speaker, we'll the chair will put in rows. Mr. Gross. Speaker,
3: Questions I on I the am for the committee vote on the committee Those in favor, say aye. Mr. Speaker,
2: Welcome to Civics 101. I'm Nick Capodice.
1: And I'm Hannah McCarthy.
2: And we're continuing our series on the upcoming midterm elections. Today, something many Americans are going to see on their ballot and a question I've wanted to ask since day one. What is the difference between the House and the Senate? They mostly have the exact same powers, with a few exceptions, which we'll talk about. But they both propose bills that might become laws, Bills can start in either the House or the Senate, but they have to be passed by both houses before they go to the President to be signed into law. Though to really understand their key differences, we need to go back through the annals of history.
1: Please don't do this.
2: Oh, why it appears we're at the Old City Tavern in Philadelphia in 1787, Hannah.
1: Please, Nick. Please. Why is that James Madison over there?
5: The Sage of Montpelier. Oh, we only have a Congress. Yes, but ours will be different. Since our plan expands the powers of Congress, we will check that power by dividing it into two houses, an upper house and a lower house.
1: What is that from? You've
2: never seen a more perfect union, the bread and butter of the eighth grade social studies class? Okay, fine. (laughs) Forget it. Scrap it. But what I'm trying to get at is that during the debates, the great debates of the Constitutional Convention, there was this huge question of representation. Who should make our laws? How many people? Should the big states have more power because they've got a bigger population or should all states have equal representation? And to make a long story short, we have ended up with both. We have a two house government, a bicameral legislature. The names can be kind of tricky, though. So here is teacher and former California State Assembly member Cheryl cook Calio.
6: And so Congress is technically both the House of Representatives and the Senate. Members of the lower house, the House of Representatives, have always been addressed as Congress members and members of the upper house have been addressed as senator.
1: So a senator is technically a congressperson But you would never call them that.
2: Yeah, no. And the Senate is technically one of the houses of Congress. But when we say the House, we mean the House of Representatives.
6: I am glad we got that out of the way. I have always wondered. The framers created a two-house legislature in order to make sure that the needs of the people, as well as the states, were addressed. The House of Representatives, the the length of term is shorter. It's every two years. It's a more frantic place. Uh, It takes on a, a sense of urgency. The Senate, on the other hand, is up every six years.
2: Length of term is a major thing that differentiates the House and the Senate. Uh, the next key difference is the number of members. Our current House has 435 members, which are portioned by state population. Right. So like California has 53 congresspeople. We in New Hampshire have two. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the Senate has 102 from each state. Boo.
5: The founders were trying to give the public some power, trying to have some element of democracy. The problem is they didn't trust the people as far as they could throw them. This is Dan
2: Casino, political science professor at Fairleigh Dickinson University.
5: They didn't like the people at all. They even called democracy mobocracy because they didn't like the idea of the people actually running anything. The reason we have the House of Representatives is to give the people a voice, but to make sure that voice can't actually do anything. The house is supposed to be representative of the people, but as far as the founders are concerned, the people of the United States were kind of like the people of Springfield and the Simpsons. Man, Man,
3: Man, 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 Man.
5: Man. They're ready to jump on any bandwagon with pitchforks and torches and protest against anything. And we've seen this repeatedly throughout American history. In the early 19th century, we had the first major third party in American politics, the Anti-Masonic Party, a party devoted entirely to a conspiracy theory that Masons were murdering people in upstate New York, dumping the bodies, then Masonically oriented police and judges were covering the whole thing up.
1: That was their sole platform, not liking
5: the Freemasons? <laughs> that seems a little ridiculous, except those folks, the anti-Masonic party, won a bunch of seats in state houses and even won a bunch of seats in House of Representatives. So why does it matter? Well, the founders saw this, they thought this would happen, so what they did was they made sure the House of Representatives couldn't really do anything. The House of Representatives is subject to the whims of the people. So if you anti-Masonic party is really popular for two years, guess what, they can take some seats in the House. But even if they took every seat that was up for them in the Senate, they could never control more than a third of the Senate. The House is there to represent the whims of the people, the Senate is there to make sure that the people can't actually get anything done. Now, that's inefficient, of course, but that's exactly the way the founders set things up. The people can pass whatever they want in the House and it'll die in the Senate.
1: So it sounds like Dan is saying the Senate is, should I say, superior, superior to the House? I don't know.
2: (laughs) I mean, the House does... Get some bills out there. I've got to be fair. But Dan told me that number. It's like 9%. Wow. And most of them are pretty uncontroversial bills.
1: So like naming a holiday or something like that. Okay.
2: And in the Senate, honestly, it's not too much better right now. It's about 15 percent of bills proposed become law. But back in the 60s, the norm was much higher. Over half of Senate bills became law.
1: I want to know what they think of each other. Does the House have like an inferiority complex? Well,
2: let's see what they have to say for themselves. So I got a former Senate staffer, Justin LeBlanc.
7: We jokingly often refer to, uh, to the House and the Senate uh, with reference to what the British Parliament calls them, and that is obviously the House of Commons and the House of Lords. And a former House staffer, Andy Wilson.
0: Despite the House and the Senate being co-equal branches of government, there's very much a feeling that the Senate is sort of the upper chamber.
1: Wait, are they co-equal? They
2: are, but that does not stop the sense that one of them is more uptown. It's
0: more stately, it's more dignified, etc., so there's sort of a different feeling about even the Senate side of the Capitol complex versus the House side.
2: Justin and Andy have both left Congress since. Justin is now the founder and president of LobbyWise, and Andy works for a PR firm in
0: New York City. Well, I'm a, I'm a House guy, so uh, I quite enjoyed the, the the free-flowing nature of the House. Um, other, member, other people that might have worked in the Senate might might feel more proud of having sort of that stately Senate vibe. But... I like the house.
2: I think it might be a house gal. It sounds a little more fun, doesn't it? Yeah. Look, I, I want to make it clear. Andy and Justin were in no way throwing shade towards each other's chambers, but there is some good-natured ribbing that goes on.
1: So I've got a good feel for their differences due to size and term length, but what are the specific differences in their powers?
7: Right, here's what Justin said about that. I think the, the most significant difference uh, Difference between the Senate and the House uh, really comes down to uh, two things. While they both have to pass uh, legislation, and they have to pass the identical legislation in each chamber before it can go to the President for signature uh, into law, only the Senate has the uh, the constitutional responsibility and authority to advise and consent the White House on treaties. And so, any treaty agreed to by the White House has to be. Um, Approved by the United States Senate. The House does not have such similar authority.
2: And not just treaties, but the Senate confirms all presidential appointments. Cabinet secretaries.
1: Secretary of State, Secretary yes, of Defense, etc. Um,
7: ambassadors and Supreme Court justices. And then on the flip side, uh, all appropriations measures, that is all measures that fund the federal government. Those le- those bills must begin in the House. The Senate does not have the authority to initiate an appropriations process.
2: This has a fun name, by the way. It's called the power of the purse. The framers wanted the House, the voice of the people, to be dominant when it comes to how we tax and spend money. The Senate cannot make money bills. But besides money, there's also impeachment powers. Here's Cheryl Cacaglio again.
6: The other specific job the House of Representatives have is that any articles of impeachment for any elected uh, a na- federal official goes through the House of Representatives. If they are um, if they are passed in the House of Representatives, the trial is held in the Senate. Uh, that's a specific job of each house.
0: Voting's different too. In the House, it's majority rule. So in order to pass a piece of legislation in the House, it's 50% of the votes plus one. So if you know if the Republicans have a 20 seat majority, they can basically do whatever they want
2: passing HR3109 if ordered this is a 15 minute vote
0: whereas in the Senate people might be familiar with the filibuster which frequently requires 60 votes for something to pass you know sixty percent uh, of the of the Senate has to agree for something to be passed which requires a greater deal of consensus a greater deal of coalition building even once uh, a party's in the majority they may not have enough to pass that 60-vote threshold, and so you have to work with the opposing party or at least some members of the opposing party. So it's much more of a collegial uh, feeling in the Senate versus um, sort of a our side versus your side view uh, and feeling in the House of Representatives.
1: It kind of sounds like the filibuster, which we think of as like a strong-arming tactic that gets in the way of things. It it sounds like that actually forces people to reach across the aisle and work together.
2: Yeah, and it's totally different in the House.
5: The House of Representatives has 435 voting members. Now, the problem is that that's so many people that you're never going to wrangle all of them. If you let everybody talk, they're never going to shut up. If there's one thing politicians love, it's the sound of their own voice. As a result, the House of Representatives is incredibly tightly controlled. Everything that happens in the House of Representatives first has to go through what's called the Rules Committee, a committee that doesn't even exist in the Senate. What? I know. They don't even have a rules committee. And the rules committee is going to decide for any bill that comes out of committee if that bill is actually going to make it to the floor or not, what terms that bill will be argued under, and how much debate you're going to have. Now, when we say how much debate, you might be thinking two senators or two representatives are going to gum up and debate and talk back and forth, but that never actually happens outside of Hollywood. And the House of Representatives, the most common rule we get is what's called a closed rule. Meaning there's going to be no amendments allowed whatsoever, and they're going to allow somewhere around 15 minutes of debate. So you get 15 minutes of Republicans talking about the bill, 15 minutes of Democrats talking about the bill, and then you're going to have an up or down vote on the bill. And that's all you're going to get. Because if they actually allowed amendments, you have all these radicals from both sides there, nothing is ever going to happen. They've basically given up on trying to build consensus in the House of Representatives. House of Representatives is all about mobilizing your party and ramming through whatever you can. And the Speaker of the House, because of that, becomes enormously powerful. If the Speaker of the House doesn't like a bill, that bill is dead.
2: Failure to act on a bill is the equivalent of killing a bill. So the Speaker of the House can just refuse to allow any bill to come to the floor so it'll never be voted on. And that's unless you do this thing called a discharge petition, but that's got to be in another episode.
5: Gotcha. So the Senate is supposed to be this great debating place where all these members stand up and actually talk to each other and have back and forth. And unfortunately, that basically never happens. If you ever watch C-SPAN or C-SPAN 2 or C-SPAN 3 or C-SPAN History, if you're a real nerd, if you ever watch the C-SPANs, you'll notice they focus on the person who's talking and never focus on anyone else. They don't show you who's in the gallery. The reason they don't show you that is because there's nobody else there. When members of Congress are speaking... They are, in fact, talking to themselves. Nobody else is hanging out. Why not? Because they've got other stuff they need to be doing. Either go in a committee hearing or they're raising money, which a lot of members of Congress spend up five, six hours a day doing.
2: And this is something that both houses have in common. Campaigning a lot, five to six hours a day, just to stay in office. Here's former state rep and CNN political analyst Bakari Sellers.
3: Let me just say that when you're in the House of Representatives... The campaigns never end um, you're in a perpetual sense of campaigning uh, because it's that two-year period uh, the, you, you don't stop you don't take a reprieve you win an election and you you move on to the next election so
5: if you want to run for the house the big thing you have to have is name recognition in your community in a relatively small community 700,000 people for most house seats you have to people have to know who you are and you have to be able to knock on doors and mobilize people to knock on doors for you so what does it take to campaign for the senate
3: Oh for if you're campaigning for United States Senate you should have been campaigning your entire life. Uh there's <laughs> there's no uh there's no waiting until the filing period. Some and I love to see that you have these like billionaires or millionaires who um or people who have this amazing sense of self and they wait until the filing period which is usually like March for a June or July or August primary. And they think they can just parachute in and run a race and spend money on TV?
5: If you want to run for the Senate, the big thing you need is either to be really rich yourself or to know a whole lot of rich people, because that Senate race is going to cost you tens of millions of dollars, and you're never going to be able to knock on enough doors. So the types of candidates you get are going to be very, very different. This is also one of the reasons why we see a lot more women running for the House than we do for the Senate. While women are able to mobilize uh, other voters just as well as anyone else, they actually have a harder time raising money because they don't necessarily have the business connections, because of lots of other things going wrong in our society, that would let them easily run for the Senate. And that doesn't just affect gender in the Senate.
3: It's, you can literally still count um, on less than two hands, but, you know, if you go back in history and you're talking about Ed Brooke and Mo Cowan and Carol Mosley Braun and Cory Booker and Kamala Harris and Tim Scott, I just ran through, uh, there may be one that I'm missing or two, but I just ran through the African-American members of the United States Senate um, in history. And so um, it's a very it's a very deliberative body, um, but it's also a very old white male body as well. Usually there's a sense of patriarchy that puts you in a position to run for that office.
2: And going by the numbers, he's right. As of this recording, October of 2018, there have been 10 total African-American U.S. senators ever So So 10
1: total in the history of the country.
2: 10 total in the history of the United States. Currently, the Senate is 150th Mm African-American. But by contrast, the House is 10% African-American. So it's a huge difference.
1: Yeah, it is huge.
2: I asked Justin and Andy, former Congress staffers, for their final thoughts on both houses and the system as a whole
7: the elected officials your elected officials and their staff work incredibly hard and they're um, they're not particularly well paid Um, and uh, they work exceedingly long hours most senators and their staff are in the office from seven or eight in the morning until nine or ten at night every day of the week and when they uh, when they go home they're working uh, all weekend and when we talk about congressional recesses that is times where the House and the Senate are not actually in session and can't vote on legislation, they're not on vacation. Um, Their staff are still showing up on the Hill every day to to do their jobs and the members are back in their states uh, continuing to work. And so um, whether you agree or disagree with the policy positions uh, your elected officials may take, uh, I would never accuse any one of them or their staff of being uh, lazy or not hardworking.
0: Sometimes it's easy to look at the House of Representatives or the Senate or the executive branch and think of it kind of like a machine. It's just this big bureaucracy that exists and it kind of churns on and on and on. But it's really a very human enterprise. It's really about how do you work with your colleagues, how do you have relationships with them, and you know who do you know well, who do you work with well, etc. So it's very much a human enterprise. The second piece which follows off on that is it's only, the system is only as good as the people that are involved in it, whether that's voting or whether that's running for Congress or whether that's working as a staffer, whether that's getting involved in local political debates or local government issues, state government issues, county government issues, etc. So it's easy to sit back and say these bums don't do anything or hey, they're good for nothing or something like that, but um, it's really just a bunch of people that are... Elected by by people in states and districts across the country, and so if 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 you have a complaint or if you have a priority, then the only way to to push for it or the way to make it, to make a difference or make things different is to get involved.
1: I have one last question. Yeah, what is it? I mean, it it all just sounds so ridiculous. Hmm? Senators talking to an empty room. The House is not even debating. Everybody stopping anything from getting done. Yes,
2: so. That was my final question for Dan. It sounds like the whole thing is broken, that it's a farce, that it doesn't work. Is that true?
5: And even though all this is absurd, all the way we're doing things and passing bills is absurd, it doesn't make any sense. This is exactly the way the founders wanted it to work. The mechanisms like cloture and filibusters and gerrymandering, none of that was foreseen by the founders. But the general principle... The House is subject to the whims of the people, the anti-Masonic party, the Tea Party, whatever. They get in there, they pass crazy bills that should never work. And they're allowed to do that because that's what the people want. And then it goes to the Senate and the Senate doesn't do anything. And that's exactly the way the whole system is supposed to work. The Senate is supposed to be the branch of government that stops anything from ever actually happening. And today we view that as a bug. We think that's a bad thing. We want our government to be really much more efficient the way you see parliamentary systems working in most of the world. But our government is not set up to be efficient. It's set up to be inefficient. It's set up to make sure that no big change can actually happen unless the voters for years on end, four or six years, all are voting in support of this and all three branches of government are in accord with it. It's really easy to kill a law. It's almost impossible to pass one.
1: I've never considered that inaction could be a comforting thought.
2: Yeah, Me neither. Uh, And and sometimes it's nice to be reminded that this machine has human hands at the wheel. Yeah. Well, before we go, we have our snapshot midterm from U.S. history, delivered by none other than Brady Carlson, former NHPR reporter, current afternoon host at Wisconsin Public Radio, and the author of Dead Presidents.
4: Today, we're talking about the midterm of 1894. It's not a very well-known midterm, but if you want to talk about a wave election, this was the wave election to end all wave elections. Up to this point, the Democratic Party had majorities in both the House and Senate. They had won back Congress in the 1892 election when Grover Cleveland had won back the White House from Republican Benjamin Harrison. This is when Grover Cleveland became the only president to serve two non consecutive terms. So, this was his moment with destiny. A week before Cleveland came back to the presidency, there had been a financial collapse in the railroad industry, and that sort of tipped off the domino train. A number of other key industries fell, and the market fell as a whole. This is what was later known as the Panic of 1893. So the democrats have just returned to power they've got the white house they've got majorities in congress and the economy falls apart people were calling on the new president to do something about the panic there was even a march on washington but grover cleveland saw himself as what's sometimes called a guardian president his thinking was congress steers the ship of state the president really only steps in to administer the laws and to stop Congress when they go too far. So he didn't really think it was up to him to get in the way of the economic cycle and intervene in the economy. The catch was that a lot of the people who had put him back in power were workers, immigrants, farmers, the people who were being hurt by the panic and at the same time, in 1894, there was a very high-profile railroad strike, the Pullman Strike, in which hundreds of thousands of railroad workers walked off the job. They had had their wages cut, and they were protesting. And this is the time where the president decided he should step in. So he sent federal troops to break it all up. And that got plenty of pushback, though— as a conciliatory gesture, he proposed the holiday in honor of workers that we now call Labor Day. Labor Day, Labor
0: Day.
4: Are and are open. So it was sort of like uh, it's sort of a way to get everybody to feel like they had been heard, even when they maybe quite hadn't been. In the midterm of 1894, Cleveland and the Democrats had 220 seats in the House, and they lost. 113 of those the biggest loss in history and then they also lost enough seats in the senate not nearly that many but they lost enough in the senate to lose majority control there so they went from having all the power to almost none of the power and they wouldn't regain those majorities in congress for almost two decades so it was really the political version of what goes up must come down it was it was really a case where people were saying, we blame you for this and we are going to put other people in power because we don't think that what you've done is the the right policy and, and the right way to handle this economic crisis. Thank you, Brady,
2: for the story of the greatest loss. And U.S. midterm history. Today's episode was produced by me, Nick Cappadice, and Hannah McCarthy.
1: Our staff includes Ben Henry and Jackie Helbert. Our executive producer is Erica Janik, and Maureen McMurray is a total house
6: gal.
2: Music for today's episode comes from Blue Dot Sessions, Creo, Broke for Free, Jazar, and Electric Needle Room. Special thanks to one of the nicest, greatest member stations out there, WOVV in Oak Creek.
1: More midterms prep is coming down the pipe, so be sure to subscribe. You can also say hi. Hi, and listen to all of our episodes at civics101podcast.org.
2: Civics 101 is a production of NHPR, New Hampshire Public Radio. Got it. And then thank you. Of Grover Cleveland. The National.